Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We want every man, woman, and child to hear the gospel message and then to live their life for King Jesus. We're going to continue in a series we started last week. We called this series Because of Bethlehem. And so if you brought your Bibles with you, turn to the New Testament book of Titus. Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14 is where we're going to be this morning. A sermon I'm calling Grace Has Appeared. And so we launched this series last week, and uh, Lord willing, we'll be in, in this on Christmas Day, and then one week in January. Last week, we talked about how God came for us. And we looked at Isaiah chapter 9, and where Isaiah lined this out, that that's what God would do. And today, we're going to be talking how grace has appeared. Now, and we're talking in the book of Titus. Titus is not typically a book that I think usually we go to during the Christmas time. Titus is a book that's referred to as one of Paul's pastoral epistles. So the Apostle Paul, he's writing a pastor by the name of Titus, and he's outlining everything that's going to take to shepherd a flock, a congregation, to be a pastor to those people. But I think in the middle of that text, there's, the, there's these four verses that I think if we look at, we can really glean from what happened on that first Christmas day. With that, let's go ahead and read Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. The word of God says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the parents of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for him a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So, so this morning, I want to go line by line, verse by verse, those four, four verses, really pack it, and, and really try to glean what happened on that first Christmas day. So with that, let's read verse 11 again. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Here's my first point this morning. Point number one, the grace of God has appeared for all people. You know, if you were to poll the vast majority of the people in the world, most people think that heaven is reserved for a very select group of people. That if you're to obtain salvation, it's only this small, very select group of people. And it's weird how so often the people that think like this, they always include themselves in this, this select group of people. That's weird. But they think that if you're going to make it to heaven, you have to be a good person. And the people that think like this usually typically think that they're one of the good people that's going to make it to heaven. Well, anyways, if you're going to make it to heaven, you have to be granted access to heaven. That you're going to have to do something that's going to cause God to love you. That if God's going to love you, you have to do something grand to win his affection. Or if that's not the way they think, then you have to do something where God doesn't hate you enough to send you to hell. But with that thinking, salvation is not something you receive, it is something that you achieve. And that way of thinking is completely counter to everything that is taught in the Bible. Because you can search the Bible from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, and you will read that salvation is by grace. The word grace that Paul uses in Titus chapter 2 verse 11 is the Greek word charis. It means unmerited favor. It means that it's something that you cannot earn, that you do not deserve, but yet God freely gives you his grace. See, if grace came in any other way than God given it to it, then it wouldn't be grace. 
And the grace of God that Paul's referring to, he says that it leads to salvation. And this grace, it has come for all people. You know, one thing that tells us that there's no one that's too sinful that they cannot be saved. There is no one that is so sinful that they cannot be saved by the very gracious hand of God because the grace of God has come for all people. So I want you to know that no one is so sinful that they cannot be saved. And also, there is no one that is not in need of salvation. So everyone needs to be saved. And no one is beyond saving. Why should we all celebrate Christmas? Because the grace of God has come for all people. Because it was at Christmas when the grace of God was put on blast for the entire world to see. So Christmas, it's not about eggnog. It's not about a tree. It's not about lights on your house. It's not about any other thing. No, Christmas is about Emmanuel. And the name Emmanuel means God with us. Just think about the word Christmas. Christ occupies the first six letters of that nine letters of that word. So we don't celebrate Santamus. We don't celebrate Tremus or Shoppingmus or Reindeermus or any other mus. We celebrate Christmas for a reason. Because the story of Christmas is where Christ, God himself, broke into the world. He wrapped himself in human flesh and he came, born as a baby in Bethlehem. Christmas is all about the grace of God. And Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared. That Jesus Christ, he is the grace of God. And he appeared 2,000 years ago because he came, he lived, he died, and he rose again. And guess what? He's going to come again. That's Christianity in a nutshell, that God came, he lived, he died, and he rose again, and he's coming back again. Listen to how the Apostle John said this this all began in John chapter 1, verse 1. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning is how John starts the, his gospel. And, and I believe he's borrowing from Moses, both men inspired by the Holy Spirit. Because when Moses wrote Genesis, Moses started in the beginning God. And now John says in the beginning was the word. Well, who was the word that John was referring to? Well, he tells us very clearly 13 verses later in John chapter 1 verse 14. John writes, and, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. One of the founders of the world's biggest cults, he claimed that the word that John was referring to was scripture. You see, but there's a problem with that. Scripture does not become flesh, nor does scripture dwell among us. The word, word, that John was referring to very clearly is Jesus And John makes it so evident that he was in the beginning. He is, was, and always will be God. The word Jesus is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And that last line packs such a powerful punch that Jesus is full of truth and he is full of grace. That Jesus is the very embodiment of grace and truth. That Jesus has a monopoly on grace and truth. He alone is full of grace and truth, lacking nothing. He's, in, he's in, not insufficient in any aspect. Because Jesus is 100% graceful and yet 100% truthful at the same time. We're incapable of being 100% on grace or truth. 
And really, for me, I have a tough time being 50-50 on either of these. But Jesus was able to balance the two perfectly. If you've been married more than 15 minutes, I think you'll agree with what I'm about to say here. But there's going to be this instant that happens in your marriage where you're going to have to answer a question where you're doomed no matter how you answer it. Right? If, if you side on the side of truth, then you're not going to be very gracious and you're going to be in deep, deep trouble. And if you side on the side of, uh, of grace, then you're not going to be truthful. And if you've been married more, very long at all, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But Jesus got them both right. 100% of the time, he was 100% truthful, 100% grateful at all times because he was compassionate towards sinners and then yet told him, go and sin no more. He was able to eat with the tax collectors, with the sinner. He drew them into his fear, sphere of love and was still truthful and graceful at the same time. And Paul says to Titus that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Look what Paul says next in verse 12, Titus chapter 2. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Here's point number two for us this morning. The grace of God has appeared to change people. You see, Christmas is about the grace of God. And this grace of God, it changes people. Now, I say that Christmas changes you, but you, it only changes you if you accept it on God's terms and not your own. That you accept Christmas the way that God gives it. So many people, especially Americans, we're probably the worst at this. We have commercialized Christmas. But Christmas is not about what is under the tree with your name on it. Christmas isn't about buying that perfect gift for some of you love. No, Christmas is about when God gave the greatest treasure that the world would ever see. When he gave the gift of his son, that's when grace came. The grace can and it will, it will save you from your sins. And grace can and will save you from hell. And grace can and will make you fit for heaven. But there's nothing that is as transformal in, in this world than the very grace of God. You know, I look back at my life and I can see a number of instances that absolutely changed me as the man I am today. I remember very clearly... I believe I was four years old. I remember coming through our front door of our house. I remember my mom sitting in a blue chair on my left. I remember my dad's parents trying to console my mom and my dad taking my sister and I into the master bedroom, setting us on the bed and informing us my grandfather had been killed. And that day changed me. I remember some, some, some times my dad and I having some very frank conversations as a young child that absolutely changed me. I remember the day I graduated from high school. I remember the day I married my bride. I remember every day that our children came into our homes. And those days absolutely changed me. But the greatest day of my life was October 19th, 2003. That's the day I came to know that Jesus is God. And that is the day when Christmas became very real to me. You see, the fact of the deity of Christ and who he is, that changes what happened on the cross called Calvary. And that is the day I came to know the grace of God. And that grace changed me. There's nothing that will ever change me like the grace of God. And this grace of God that Paul is speaking of is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see, you cannot taste the grace of God and go unchanged. 
Because the grace of God, it changes your desires. It, it, the grace of God makes you want to renounce ungodliness. It makes you want to live outside of worldly passions. Because the grace of God that Paul is talking about here, it makes me want to be a better husband. It makes me want to be a better father than I would otherwise be. Because the grace of God makes me want to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the here, in the now. And there's nothing else that can do that. You see, all of religion, you name the religion, it's just simply behavior modification. That is, if you do the do's and don't the don'ts, well, then maybe, just maybe, God might accept you. That's just behavior modification. All religion just teaches you to do the do's and don't the don'ts in the the name of the one whom that religion is over. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or Taoism or you name the ism. They're all the same. You see, here's the difference between religion and Christianity. Because religion says do, or Christianity says done. Religion says do just a little more. Do a little more. Be a good person. Be a better person. Do all that you can do. And then maybe, oh, just maybe God will accept you. Religion says do. Christianity says done. You know how God spells done? God spells done, G-R-A-C-E. That the, that, that's how God spells done. God spells done by, by grace. And it's the grace of God that leads me, that leads you, that leads the believer to live a godly life. Not for salvation, but because of salvation. That God is continually putting his grace upon us, calling us by his grace, winning us with his love. We can be so stubborn sometimes, Right? Do you know that, that, that there's a, a quick way, an easy way to make a very tough piece of meat tender? If you've ever bought meat, maybe you bought some meat on, on the cheap, and you can take a piece of meat and you cook it up, but sometimes it's just tender. It's not, it's not tender enough. And so the easiest way, just add some seasoning to it. Add a little salt to it. Hopefully that tenderizes it. But sometimes that's not enough, right? Sometimes you've got a piece of meat that's just, it's just too, too tough. And so what you have to do is you've got to get a mallet. You have to, bam, you've got to hit it. And sometimes you got to do it more than once, right? You got to bam, hit it and hit it and hit it over and over until that meat eventually becomes soft, right? And so it is with the gospel of God's grace. Because sometimes you can hear a message like that, the forgiveness of sin by God's grace, and hopefully that just softens your heart to receive this grace. And then you give your life to God. But sometimes our hearts just aren't tender enough. And sometimes God can and will get the hammer of life to kind of beat you in, to soften your heart, that you would accept his grace. I know I look back at my life and I could see God's gracious hand along the way. And so I can also see the hammer of God that was softening my heart so I would receive his grace. But once you receive his grace, how can you go and not be unchanged? Because I know I definitely don't deserve the grace of God. Hopefully you know that too. And I know Paul would say that you cannot receive the grace of God and then go unchanged. You cannot receive the grace of God and then go on living without renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. You cannot receive the grace of God and still be that same person that you used to be. I've heard it said that God changes your want to. I didn't want to be a kind man back before I knew the grace of God. I didn't want to care what people thought about me. I didn't used to care. I didn't want to devote my time. I didn't want to devote my effort, my money to anything other than me. But now I want to. Why? 
because he changed me. You see, and he changed me by his grace. And someone that, do, that God doesn't change their want to isn't someone that's received the grace of God. That's what that Paul's talking about. You see, there's a lot of people that claim to be Christians, but then their want to doesn't line up with what the Bible says their want to will be. Those people are just simply given evidence that fruit is how the Bible says it, that their want to has not been changed by the grace of God, meaning they're not really Christians. Now, please hear me out. This is so important that our lifestyle doesn't make us right with God, but being right with God should change our lifestyle. And someone that goes on to live an unchanged lifestyle is proven they haven't really received God's grace. Keep reading, look in verse 13 of Titus chapter 2. Paul says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Here's my third point, point number three. The grace of God appeared when Christ came. You see, because of Bethlehem, there was a king that was born. The God-man came to earth. I just love how Paul said it. Then he said, the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Make no doubt about it. No, make no mistake that Jesus is and always will be God. You see, the child that we celebrate on Christmas morning, he became this king on a cross that would die for our sins, that we now worship as our Savior when he rose from the grave on Easter Sunday. But I want you to know, Bethlehem, it was just the beginning. Jesus has promised us a repeat performance because at his first coming, there was this king. He was a madman. He ordered a census. And so there were these two teenage peasants. They were forced to travel. And his mother, Mary, she was pregnant with the very son of God. And the inn was full and the hour was late. And the angels were the first to proclaim the gospel message to these lowly shepherds. And then later, the star would guide the magi to where the child would be. So back when he was a baby, Mary and Joseph, they held their firstborn son in their hands and they gazed into the very face of God. But at Christ's second coming, there will be no silent night. There will be no silent night at Jesus' second coming because the skies are going to open, the trumpets are going to blast, the, the new kingdom will begin, and then Christ comes for his second appearance. I'll call it a repeat performance. Listen to how Jesus says it's going to happen in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. Jesus says, and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heavens with power and great glory. So there will be no silent night when Jesus returns for the second time. And I would say in the second time, the second time he comes, it will look much closer to how we envision how the first Appearance should have looked, if you will. But when will Jesus return? No one knows but the Father. Listen to what Jesus says about this in Matthew 24, verse 36. It says, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. You see, if you're one of these eschatological nuts, that means a study of, of end times, maybe you have charts and graphs to, depicting how it's all going to go down. Maybe you have some very strong held beliefs of the exact day. But one of the telltale signs of a false preacher is when they start naming dates. Okay? Here's a little piece of advice. Don't try to figure it out. Just know he's coming back. Because nobody knows but the Father. And I think it's a great thing that no one knows but the Father. 
Because if we had any clue of when Jesus returned, I think I know exactly how we'd behave. We'd all behave like that spoiled, rotten kid that, that threw a party while his parents were gone and the, the house is a mess and then gets a phone call an hour before the his parents are returning and then spends all that hour trying feverishly trying to clean up the mess he made. But since we don't know, we'll always be waiting. We'll always be watching. We're always to be ready because Jesus could come back at any moment. So we're called to wait. We're called to work. We're called to worship. We're to expectantly wait like a broom is waiting for, for her groom. Bride's waiting for a groom. And Paul said, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of our glory and great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So in the history of time, there will be two great appearances. Two times in history where glory will be revealed of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. In the first appearance, that happened in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. The second will be his great return, the second coming. And both are amazing, but I would argue that the second is going to be far, far more spectacular. Listen to how the apostle John says he got a vision from God and said what it's going to look like. Found in Revelation chapter 19, verse 13. John says, and then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse and the one sitting on is called faithful and true and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like flames of fire on his head were many diadems and he had the name written, which no one knew but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name which he is called is the word of God. Verse 15. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which, which he will strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Yeah, I, learned, I left verse 14 out on purpose because that talks about how believers are going to be coming back with him. But the picture that John gives us, can we, can we all agree that that is a lot more spectacular than the, than the baby laid, laid in the, the manger in Bethlehem at his first coming? Because his first coming, that was a humble scene. His second appearance is going to be humbling to say the least. In fact, I encourage you to make sure you're on the right side of Jesus when that happens because there is, it's, it's too late if you're not. Keep reading, look in Titus 2 verse 14. The word of God says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. Here's my fourth point. Point number four. The grace of God has appeared to put us to work. It's not a message you usually hear, right? But do you hear what, you, what that says in that verse? That he himself, that Jesus Christ, he gave himself that is the statement of the substitutionary atonement that he voluntarily offered uh, to, uh, to buy us back from, the, from sin and to make us his own. That is the basic understanding of the Christian gospel. That he gave himself for us to buy us back. That he became the substitute. That he took our place on that cross. That carries the idea of Jesus Christ being the substitute that died the death that we should have died. Listen to how Jesus says it in the gospel of Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. In other words, he put his life on the line to win us back from the slavery of sin. Not not even on the line, but he knew it was going to happen. He knew it was going to happen. He knew it was going to cost him his life, and yet he did it anyways. He knew that Christmas would lead to the crucifixion, and he went to the cross despite it. He did this because he wanted us for his own possession. That Christ gave himself to pay the price to satisfy the very wrath of God that might, that might release us from the slavery of sin so that we become servants of God. So not only that we become servants of God, that we could be called children of God, adopted into his family. Listen to how Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. He says, who gave himself as a ransom for all. I want you to know there was a ransom price paid. That the kidnapper is sin. And the kidnapper named its price. And the ransom price is the life of the very son of God. And Jesus redeemed us. That means he paid the price. So that we could be set free. I mean, the price has been paid. Christ became the ransom. And that's why Paul told Titus that Jesus gave himself so that we might be redeemed from all lawlessness. You see, God, the, the Father God, the creators of heavens and earth, he said, my law has been violated. There must be a penalty. I demand penalty. There must be payment. So God can't just forget about sin. He can't just necessarily wipe it away until a payment has been made. You know what? Jesus paid the price. He, he paid the price in order to release the slaves. Listen now, the apostle Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with things such as, as, as silver or gold, You see, the ransom price, it wasn't silver, it wasn't gold, it was the very life of the Son of God. It was the life of Jesus Christ. And what has he bought us from? He bought us from lawlessness. Lawlessness is the very essence of sin. It is Lawlessness is rebellion against God. And he purchased us from sin. He purchased us from the power of sin. And he did it to purify for himself a people for his own possessions. You see, God didn't just save us to keep us out of hell. He didn't only save us to make us fit for heaven so that we'll be actually removed from the very presence of of sin someday. That's going to happen. But in the here and now, take us out of the slavery of sin. And then so we would become slaves to righteousness so that we can begin to live a life for him. Because he then gives us the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, to, to live in our, in our hearts, that we become the very temple of God. And so we're not our own. If you're a believer, you've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. You don't belong to yourself, but you belong to God. And God wants pure people. In order to get pure people, he has to get purged people. He has to purge us. And people that are demonstrating what it looks like to live a transformed life. The people that are living a life that that shows what it looks like to be saved. I'll say it like this. The people that are putting his glory on display for a lost world to see. You see, it's ridiculous to think that God's going to save somebody and then not sanctify somebody. That he would save them and not do the work in their life of of changing them and transforming them so that they would go on to to show a lost word what salvation looks like. 
That is to that believe that, that God might save somebody and then have no evidence of salvation. A people that's not putting his glory on display, that's ludicrous. You see, God wants to save and God wants to sanctify to put his glory on display. You see, we've been bought. And we've been bought with a price. And, and, and as our salvation has been made pure so that we could become a people of his own possession. That word possession, it could be translated as treasure. That word treasure means something above and beyond. It's an abundance of wealth. It's a particular treasure that's devoted to him. You see, he wants people to be his own treasure. Why? Here's the key. It's the end of verse 14. He said, who are zealous for good works. Paul's trying to paint a picture of people who live in godly works so that other people can see the godly power at work so that people could get saved. That's what Paul is saying. And by the way, that word zealous, it's a very important word. Because it's not meaning just doing good deeds, not just going through the motions, but people who are passionate about it. People are passionate about seeing people get saved. In other words, God wants you to honor him by bringing praise and honor and glory to him where you're using your life to live free from sin so that other people see how good he is and they want to experience the grace of God. So if you're a believer, you've been saved to give honor and glory and praise to God because he saved you, because you've experienced the grace of God. You know, so many people say things like, well, uh, God saved me because God loves me. And it's true, God does love you. But that falls woefully short of the reason God saved you. God saved you so that God can change you. And God changes you so he can put you to work. So if you're not working for God, but yet you're saved, then you're not doing the job that God has saved you in order to do. It's kind of like a person who is employed by a company and collects a check every week, but then is not doing any of the work to earn that check. Listen to how the Apostle Paul says it to the church in Ephesus. One of the hallmark passages of Christianity is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. The word of God says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. So there's that word again, grace, charis, unmerited favor. By the grace of God, you've been saved. And I love the word saved because it, it carries the idea of being rescued from danger. For by grace, you've been saved through, through, uh, through faith. And it's not your own doing, it's a gift of God. So no one could beat their chest and look, look how good I am, that I saved me. God has to give me his grace because I'm so good. No one can say that. And I think we all, many of us know that Ephesians 2, 8, 9, but what's the next verse? Read Ephesians 2, 10. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So God saved you so that you would do good works. And that phrase, good works, it's, it's two words in the English, it's two words in the Greek, it's agathos ergon in Greek. Agathos means good, just like what you think it means. But, but Aragon, it means business. It could be translated that we should be in the good business. I'll say it like this. We should be in the family business. God saved us, not primarily that we would go to heaven, though that's an amazing side effect. I'm so glad we get that. But he saves us so that we'll bring more people into the family of God. 
right? Do you get what God's doing? God's in the saving business. God brings us into the family. Now he wants us in the family business world, which by people get saved. So grace has appeared. The saving grace has came to save us from sin's penalty. And it saved us from sin's power. There's coming a day in the future where we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. And God saved a believer for the express purpose that we begin to be Begin to live lives that are transformed. That other people would see the way we're living and go, you know what, I want to get in on that. I want to experience that grace of God. That we would live such lives that people could look at us and, and, and know that God is real. But like I said earlier, and I want to bring it up again, that there's so many people that are claiming the salvation of God, yet they don't even know God. So many people are carrying around the name of Christian and name only, and they do nothing with the salvation that they're claiming. But Christmas has appeared. Grace has come to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possessions who are zealous for good works. Jesus did this so we would become living billboards of what it's like to know him and be loved by him and be saved by him. That we live lives to put his grace on display. You see, people in the world, they're looking for some transformed people. And yet they're, they're looking at what some people are calling Christianity. And these people aren't even saved. And sadly, there's churches that are full of them. Tragically, there's also pulpits that are full of them. Pastors that aren't saved. There's so many Christians that, that, that though they, they, they say they're in the sanctifying process. They say they're saved, but then they're not. They don't even know this grace of God they're, chain, they're, they're claiming. But then there's other Christians. They mess up sometimes. It's, 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 they have this bro, unbroken pattern of sin in their life, but we need to break it up. You know, the, as a believer, we're going to have times where we fall down, we mess up. We got to recognize that and still cling on to the grace of God. To put it in terms of the apostle John in John chapter 15, that we're to be bearing not fruit, but we're to be bearing much fruit is how John says it. That a believer isn't to be doing the minimum of the believers to be bearing, gathering, collecting, bringing in much fruit. See, if you're a believer, then we've got this tremendous responsibility. We've been left in this world to be a people of their zealous for good works. You see, Christmas happened because God is a saving God. And you better be ecstatic that God is a saving God. He wants to save. And the greatest evidence that he's a saving God is what his, what his followers are willing to do for him. Again, not for salvation, but because of salvation. I mean, think about it. If you're a believer, you're saved. I mean, like signed, sealed, delivered, like you're going to heaven no matter what. If you do absolutely nothing from the moment you get saved... You're going to heaven. And if you're going to heaven, I would say that you would want to bring some pretty salty people with you to heaven, right? You know, the cults go door to door. And they, they're preaching this false gospel because they have to. And we see them on the street corner preaching this message day in, day out. And it's admirable at first to see what they do. But then again, they have to. They're taught if they don't do this and they're not going to go to heaven or at least the upper tier of heaven that, they're, that their cult teaches them. But God, the real God, he says you're going no matter what. 
And let me tell you, his no matter what, it frees you up to do so much more than, 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 than the, the cults ever could. Because then again, they have to. But we should want to. So why did Christ come? Why did grace appear? To save you and to change you. My only question is, do you know this grace that we're speaking of? Have you tasted the grace of God? Because there must come this moment you recognize your sin, you turn from your sin, and you turn to, to God in faith. The Bible says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Have you called on the name of Jesus Christ, who is God come in the flesh, born of a virgin, died on a cross, rose again on the third day? Is that the Jesus you've trusted in? Because the Bible says you must call on him. If you've never called on him, I'd encourage you to do that today. You know, I think of the apostle Peter as he's walking on water and he began to sink because he took his eyes off Jesus. His prayer was, save me. Two words, it was a, that's a beautiful prayer. And if that's all you got, I think God accepts that. To cry out to him, to say something like, God, I'm a sinner. Save me from my sins. I give you my life. And I pray this name of Jesus Christ, amen.